Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. I was on an airplane. It was really late at night. I was coming back uh, north from Los Angeles, and I was sitting next to a woman, and she said, so what's it like? What's it like running, you know, lieutenant governor and there's never been a woman elected to this before. What's it like to be a woman in particular? And I said, well, we've been talking about Gavin Newsom. And I said, well, so who does Gavin Newsom remind you of? And she said, oh, I don't know, like a little bit like a young Bill Clinton, maybe a little bit like a JFK. And I said, right, who do I remind you of? And at this point, you know, it's late at night. My ponytail has been slipped out. I probably had smudges of mascara under my eyes. You know, I'm only five foot two on a good day. I don't look like anybody who someone would think of as an elected official. Uh, maybe a little Barbara Boxer because of my stature. But her, her face went blank. Close your eyes and imagine someone presidential. Someone who fits the role of U.S. president you're probably picturing an older white man. Given who served in that office, that makes sense. For many of us, most presidential elections we've seen have had mostly white male candidates. Thanks to a whole lot of work, that started to change. I'm Hillary Clinton, and I approve this message. I'm Amy Klobuchar, and I approve this message. I'm Kirsten Gillibrand, and I approve this message. I'm Elizabeth Warren, and I approve this message. A woman did not win the top spot on the 2020 ticket. Nevertheless, the United States is celebrating a historic first. I keep thinking about that 25-year-old Indian woman, all of five feet tall, who gave birth to me at Kaiser Hospital in Oakland, California. On that day, she probably could have never imagined that I would be standing before you now and speaking these words. I accept your nomination for Vice President of the United States of America. Today, on January 20th, 2021, Kamala Harris will become this country's Vice President. She'll be the first woman, the first Black woman, and the first South Asian woman in the role. The importance of the 2020 presidential race and of this glass ceiling breaking moment is enormous. It marks a significant shift in our collective understanding of who belongs in the White House. I asked Ashanti Golar, president of Emerge and host of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast about what this moment means to her. Oh my goodness, it's huge. It's absolutely big. You know, there's a saying that if you can't see it, you can't be it. With Vice President Harris, with her being in that role, you cannot tell young girls that they cannot be vice president. 
that they do not belong anywhere in the White House because they've seen it. They know that it can happen. When I think about my nieces and my nephews, they only know women running for president. So it will be very weird for them if there ever wasn't a woman running for president. They would be like, wait, what, what's happening? I don't understand. The question, who do you imagine as president, drives straight to the notion of who is considered electable or fitting for the office. Just like it did for California's first woman lieutenant governor, Eleni Kunalakis, who you heard from at the top of the show, Vice President Harris's inauguration totally changes the game. Here's Amanda Hunter, executive director of the Barbara Lee Family Foundation. It can be really hard for voters to picture women in executive office when they've never seen it before. And we haven't seen a woman vice president yet. We've seen in states that have had a woman governor, once a woman serves in the office, it takes down the imagination barrier and it opens the door for other women. Voters realize that women can do the job and then they can finally picture it. So simply by standing on that stage and giving that speech, Vice President-elect Harris was breaking down that imagination barrier. And I think that she realizes that she's opening the door for other women and breaking down stereotypes simply by serving in the role. In states that have had a woman governor, it tends to break down those stereotypes for voters. So in New Hampshire, our neighbor here in Massachusetts, they've had a couple of women governors. And one of our favorite stories is a little girl went to Jean Shaheen, who's now a senator, but was governor and said that her brother wanted to be governor, but she knew he couldn't because only little girls could be governor. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan. Welcome back to Women Belong in the House. Over the next month, we're turning our attention to a different house, the White House. We're reflecting on Vice President Harris's journey to understand how she got to where she is, and perhaps more importantly, how to make sure that the momentum continues. But while I may be the first woman in this office, I will not be the last. Over the course of Kamala Harris's political career, she moved from district attorney to attorney general to senator to vice president. On this mini-series, we're going to chart that same course, episode by episode, exploring how each role shaped Kamala's trajectory. But this groundbreaking moment is about more than one woman's story. It's about all the women to come. So we're going to look at the pipeline by talking to women who've served in those same positions from across the country, too. Before we get any further, we've talked about the symbolic importance of having women in roles we've previously never filled. Let's talk about more practical reasons it's important. Here's Kelly Dittmar, Associate Professor of Political Science at Rutgers Camden and a scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics. When we think of the presidency, it is really the most masculine office in the United States. And so by simply electing a woman at this level for the first time, we are breaking a glass ceiling. But what that means is that we're disrupting the image and expectations of what it means, what it looks like to be presidential. So in a very symbolic way, it matters because it pushes us to think differently about presidential leadership. In a more substantive way, it ensures that we have a woman, in this case, a Black woman, a South Asian woman, 
child of immigrants um, who will be sitting at the most important decision-making tables when it comes to this next administration. And so it also matters for the perspective and lived experience she brings, which includes living her life as a woman. And we know that that brings with it distinct perspective again and experiences that have been lacking in presidential office holding, particularly at this top level. I mean, there are moments where the president and the vice president are in the room and the decisions are going to be made in you know split seconds. And sometimes uh, we don't even know the many ways in which it will matter to have certain voices and perspectives there. But you can point to many historical examples of where and when we would have really liked to have a woman in the room in making some of these decisions. Kamala Harris brings her whole identity to her new role. As we in the United States struggle to dismantle systems built on the backbone of white supremacy, the potential impact of having Vice President Harris and other diverse elected officials in the rooms where decisions are being made can't be understated. Here's Melanie Ramo, Executive Director of Emerge California. Tearing down policy. Tearing down policy that has has upheld systemic racism, that has held up white supremacy, that has held up these structures within our establishments and institutions. I mean, I wanna say blind spots, but it's been more than that. Those who have upheld white supremacy and uh, the status quo before, well, we have new voices in that space to call those out and to do something about it. And we have people who will be bringing their life experiences and who they are and who their community is into policymaking to point out to the blind spots that maybe others aren't seeing. I can barely put it all into words how significant this is. Vice President Harris also serves as a major recruitment tool to convince other women to run for office. Kelly Dittmar from the Center for American Women in Politics spoke to that point. There are many barriers that women face, as you well know, that are distinct from their male counterparts that that are structural. So women's disproportionate responsibilities at home (laughs) or in in other roles. Women, the evaluation of women, the skepticism that women are qualified enough to be in these roles, which then leads to them being less likely to be encouraged and tapped often by the men who hold gatekeeping roles. We know that navigating the campaign trail can be more arduous for women on multiple levels. One, they face more explicit uh, sexism, often threats, violence, etc. They face attacks on their personal life in ways that are often more damaging, or at least, in their own opinion, less worthwhile um, than, than the calculation often that men make in these positions. And so making the case to women that encountering these different hurdles or clearing these different hurdles is worth it. That, look, we know it's going to be harder for you to fundraise. We know you're going to face these stereotypes and sexism. We know that you have five other jobs in your life, many of which are unpaid. But we really need you in this office because you can change X or Y policy. I think making that case continues to be harder to women, not because they don't care, but because they found other ways to have influence on public policy and they look at government and they say, this is not functioning. Why would we wanna be a part of it? The benefit of having women 
at the highest levels of leadership making a difference is that it can be inspiring to women who then say, okay, wait, yeah, you know what? It is important that I'm at that table because when Nancy Pelosi was at the table in the negotiations over X or Y, she made a difference. Or when Kamala Harris was in the room when that major decision was happening, I think it really did matter. Kamala Harris's impact as an elected official has already served as an inspiration for others running for office. Sherry Boston is the district attorney of DeKalb County, part of the greater Atlanta metro area in Georgia. Kamala Harris has served as both an inspiration and a mentor for Sherry. Well, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you go through your life and you say to yourself, I see this person and, you know, I'm a fangirl. And then you never imagine that ultimately you'd have the opportunity for that person to actually come into your life. But that's what happened to me. And when I became solicitor, Kamala was serving at the time as district attorney in San Francisco. And so the work that she was doing on the ground in San Francisco was groundbreaking for prosecution at the time. And frankly, there weren't people that looked like me in these roles, African-American women. There weren't many, and she was one of them. And she was leading a strong office and making strides. And so I remember the first time that I kind of followed who she was and I thought to myself, these are the types of things that I want to do. And she had laid a a groundwork, a blueprint of just kind of things that you could pick up. And so I, I fangirled Kamala from afar. And, and then I got the opportunity to meet her. And it was right after I was elected district attorney, but before I took office. And we were introduced at an event. And I said, I've been a fan of yours for many years. And I've watched what you've done in the district attorney's office as an attorney general. And of course, now you're running for U.S. Senate. And what advice would you give me as I'm now stepping into my next journey as, as now the, the district attorney? And not only in that moment did she give me amazing advice, more importantly, she left me with, I'm here for you and whatever you need moving forward. And this was a woman at the time that was running a huge senatorial campaign and she was extremely busy. But in that moment, she said, here's my number. I want you to stay in touch. I want to be helpful for you. And I know I'm not alone in my story. When Kamala Harris began rising through the ranks of California leadership, there was even less of an infrastructure in place. In order to change that, organizations like Emerge were born. Here's Melanie Rommel, executive director of Emerge California again. We were founded in 2002 in the Bay Area, and we were actually founded and sparked because of Kamala Harris. So that was at the same time when she started her run for San Francisco district attorney. And she had a group of women around her, supporting her, as they were going through the process, just really recognizing the lack of resources and even a sisterhood to bring together women to support Kamala and other women who might be running for office. 
And actually that's how Emerge California and then Emerge America was born, was with Kamala's run for DA at that time. So to see her now as our next MVP, Madam Vice President, it is just really exciting, I think, for all of us as a network. Emerge recruits and trains women to run for office and has been doing so successfully for nearly 20 years. That's one of the reasons I'm so thrilled that we're producing this mini-series in partnership with the organization. So let's talk about the pipeline. What does that even mean? Why is it important to build a pipeline? Here's Ashanti Golar again. The pipeline is important. We look at just politics in general, all of the elected offices, There's 520,000 elected offices, and we know women are 51% of the population. We don't occupy 51% of those offices. So when we talk about having a reflective democracy, an inclusive democracy, it means we need more women at all levels of government. And when we talk about parity, parity really just gets you 50% men, 50% women. It doesn't mean that we're going to have parity in all levels of office. It doesn't mean we're going to have parity for Black, Brown, Indigenous women, for LGBTQ women, women with disabilities. There's a lot of work that goes into it. That does not happen overnight. And that's why organizations like Emerge are important because we wake up every day, 365 days a year, and focus on recruiting and training women to run for office. With the recruitment piece, you normally have to ask a woman seven times to run for office before she considers it. If it's a woman of color, you have to double that. Um, I will say one of the things that I love with the new generation, these young women, they're not asking for permission. They're just running, but they still need tools. They need resources. They need help, which is why it's important to have us. Emerge's 365 days a year approach to building up the pipeline is seeing results. Here's Melanie Rommel again. I think that when we talk about the pipeline, what we're really talking about is creating that movement, creating that energy of women who are every year looking to run for office and building upon that. So I can give an example. I think 20 years in, almost 20 years in as Emerge California, Today, Jenny, I don't think I've said this out loud that much. We have 204 Emerge California women serving an elected office up and down the state. So that took 20 years to build. So what that means is of the 700 women, 200 of them are serving an elected office now. And what could that mean for the future? Well, because we have been building that pipeline in California, as we see almost 100 seats in our state legislature turn over, over the next three or four election cycles, we really get to look at this pipeline and see from our alum and other women who are serving in office, who will take those next steps to serve in the state legislature. Emerge, founded in 2005, took Emerge California's learnings and expanded across the country. Emerge is currently in 27 states, working to elect women at all levels of office. After the break, we'll get back to Vice President Harris and we'll talk to two current district attorneys. But first, a word from Emerge. This miniseries is brought to you in partnership with Emerge. Hello, I'm Danielle Basipico-Kogan and I'm the board chair of Emerge. For the last 15 years, Emerge has served as the premier candidate training program for Democratic women empowering thousands of women to lead the causes and communities of the future. We currently have more than 4,000 alumni across the country, and in 2020, 
more than 400 of our alums won their races at all levels of government, and we're just getting started. In our next 15 years, we will expand our reach, pack the political pipeline all the way up, and repower political structures. Black, brown, and indigenous women, women of color, LGBTQ plus women, unmarried women, and young women, emerge women, are the future. Vice President Kamala Harris may be the first woman to hold her position, but we're on a mission to make sure that she isn't the last. We hope you will join us in this movement to change the face of politics by visiting EmergeAmerica.org and signing up to learn more about how you can run for office. That's E-M-E-R-G-E-America.org. Let's get back to Vice President Harris. I want to underscore, she took one of many paths. There absolutely is not just one recipe for success. We know that women tend not to apply for jobs unless they feel 100% qualified. If you want to run for office, please don't listen to this and think it's a checklist. Instead, go ahead and run. With that said, Vice President Harris did take a path that was successful. So let's explore why that is. Kamala Harris was elected District Attorney of San Francisco in 2003. First things first, what is a district attorney? So in most communities, your district attorney is perhaps the most powerful law enforcement officer where you live. That's DA Sherry Boston again. They have the decision every day to charge sometimes misdemeanors and felony cases in that jurisdiction. And they decide what gets prosecuted, what doesn't gets prosecuted, who goes to jail, who might not go to jail, how the policies are set for a particular prosecution office, meaning what the approach is of that office to dealing with the criminal justice system in that community. So I have been district attorney since January 1st of 2017, and I was elected on a platform of a new day for DeKalb County. And that really was about instilling transparency, accountability, honesty, and integrity back to the district attorney's office in my community. And in DeKalb at the time, our community wasn't trustful of the district attorney's office. It was concerned that decisions were being made on personal beliefs and not on what was best for the community. Um, And so I was elected on that platform and immediately we wanted to tackle issues like domestic violence, human trafficking, gangs, gun and family violence. But at the same time, My community was yearning to figure out how we could solve some of our critical social issues. And that meant bringing diversion courts, accountability courts, re-entry programs, finding ways to balance offender accountability while at the same time also seeking to serve our most vulnerable victims. It was really what motivated me to make critical change in the office and more importantly, seek to have a drastic effect on my community. Black women make up around 1% of district attorneys around the country. Changing representation at the top of the criminal justice system can change the system itself. That was part of the reason Rachel Rollins decided to run for district attorney in Suffolk County, Massachusetts. 
I think my story is one that I've heard a lot of other women uh, that are DAs and particularly black women tell. Um, I had been a lawyer for a while. I had been a former prosecutor. Uh, my background is in the federal system as an assistant United States attorney and worked at a big firm. I had really good experience, but I was tired of turning on the TV and seeing image after image of overwhelmingly poor black and brown individuals, men coming into contact with law enforcement and being harmed all the way up to death. And knowing as a lawyer that it was not just that encounter with the police, it was also the lack of prosecution by the district attorney or state's attorney or commonwealth attorney that was adding insult to injury. And then also knowing that qualified immunity might preclude any charges being filed by that family against said officer that engaged, you know, with the umbrella of we pay taxes just like everyone else and these systems are there to help us as well. You know, I just said one day, honestly, Jenny, I'm gonna stop yelling at my television and I'm gonna shut up and I'm gonna stand up and I'm gonna run for office and start changing things from the inside. District attorneys are responsible for deciding who gets charged and what cases get prosecuted. Here's Wendy Schiller, professor and chair of the political science department at Brown University. And the district attorney is responsible for the sort of emphasis in the office, right? A district attorney can go after white collar crime or, you know, gang related crime or uh, racketeering kinds of crime. It depends on what the focus and interest of the district attorney is. And also there's practices involved. So you can have, let's say, vertical prosecution, which is when one person in the office of the prosecutor's office uh, handles a case from the arrest, from the indictment and arrest to the prosecution. There's no handoff. Um, frequently, you'll have people who are um, on uh, prosecution for the arrest and the indictment, but don't handle the trial or the plea bargaining. So that, you know, there are increasing studies that show that the outcomes for cases and for, for, for everybody are better in some areas. For example, domestic violence, for example, the outcome is far better when you have vertical prosecution, where, you know, so one, one prosecutor handles the case from start to finish. And that's something that a district attorney can put in place, put in practice. They can decide, we're going to go, these kinds of cases will get vertical prosecution, these guys, these kinds will, and something called charge bargaining, which is another word for plea bargaining. And they'll decide what percentage of our cases will get plea bargain. Plea bargaining has become a much bigger part of all prosecutions. That coordination and thinking about sort of the conditions of prisons, the, you know, any kind of racial disparities in arrests and sentencing, these are general policies and organizational practices that are determined by the district attorney. Just like there are symbolic and practical reasons it's important to have a woman vice president, it's vital to have more women, and particularly women of color, district attorneys. Well, having, having Kamala Harris, who's you know, African-American and, and of South Asian descent, be a, a prosecutor, and then be a district attorney, and then and then be attorney general. You know that makes a difference for everybody involved: her colleagues, uh, the judges, the the uh, corrections officers, police officers. Seeing a woman and a woman of color in a role of prosecution also uh, it changes their perspective on what women can do, and it also helps address implicit bias. 
I mean, when we think about crime and we bring implicit bias to the table, certainly, and all those institutions we know suffer from implicit bias, we all suffer from it. And you, you can say to yourself, okay, I see black people in this way. I see women in this way. I see, and, but now I'm working for somebody who's an uh, accomplished attorney, who's the district attorney, who's a prosecutor. That changes the way that I may impose stereotypes on people of color. I mean, that's just that simple. And, you know, this came under uh, controversy when she was running, whether she was too hard on crime and too hard on prosecuting criminals in black communities, particularly drug crimes, which under, you know, certain uh, prosecutions, it's been lifted now. In a lot of cases, mandatory minimum sentencing meant a lot of people of color went to jail and mass incarceration. So, so that's the juxtaposition. How can you, as an African-American woman, do this to African-American people? But those mandatory minimum sentences were frequently beyond the control of prosecutors, right? They were mandatory. That's why it was such a problematic function of the crime bill and state versions of the crime bill from the 1990s. But that's really important. It's really important, not just for people who've been accused of crimes, not just for people who are, you know, on the other side, uh, uh, public defenders, for example. It's the, the corrections officers, like I say, the people in the courtroom, the media. People come, it breaks stereotypes, uh, particularly racial and gender. And that's crucial if you're going to make progress in the disparity in, in arresting and sentencing and certainly, obviously, police violence against people of color. For Ashanti Golar at Emerge, it's essential that we have more women and women of color in all law enforcement positions. So that's sheriffs, judges, DAs, prosecutors. These are roles that are just so important throughout the criminal justice system. And for the past few years, we've been having a lot of conversations about the criminal justice system not only as it pertains to Black Lives Matter, when we see cops getting off, you know, after killing people, we're having this conversation around cannabis, the fact that there's entire generations of Black men in particular who are locked up while we're actually seeing white people have flourishing businesses around cannabis. There's so much that goes into it. And those decisions are made by people in law enforcement, by the DAs, by the prosecutors, by the judges, by the sheriffs. So when we want to talk about why they're important, it's because our criminal justice system is the way it is now because of these individuals and the decisions that they're making. So if we want to change the criminal justice system, that means we have to change the faces of criminal justice reform. And that means having more women and more women of color in these roles. When we look at Kim Fox, when we look at Marilyn Mosby, when we look at Rachel Rollins, these women have become the face of criminal justice reform. They are Black women DAs who are reducing jail sentences, who are saying, yeah, we're not giving a kid 10 years in jail over an ounce of marijuana. These are women who, when COVID hit, expanded laws around domestic violence because they knew home was not safe for everyone and that there were going to be women and children who needed protection. They are doing the things that are changing the system. DAs have a huge amount of power. We may not talk about the role as much as other elected officials, but if you're hoping to change the criminal justice system, you must look to DAs. Here's DA Rachel Rollins again. What's so great about district attorneys, they are 
arguably the most powerful and unknown part of the legal system, right? A lot of people look at the police, judges, but in fact, the autonomy that you have as a district attorney to decide with no oversight, but your voters, right? And so for your listeners, remember, governors, yeah, they can veto, but if two thirds of the this, the House or the Senate or the legislature says no, then it's not a veto. You know, if you're a mayor and you have a city council who um, a supermajority decides X, then it's non-vetoable. All of those internal rules don't apply to district attorneys or state attorney generals. I don't have to ask permission. We just don't. It is a decision that we can say, depending on who we are, what are we going to use our limited resources to focus on? And, and who I am, Jenny, as a person is I ran and tried to be as transparent as possible. I put it up on my website six weeks before my primary to say, this is what I'm going to do. We are doing this not for me, not for my ego, not for my name. The people of Suffolk County finally believe that there's going to be someone in this office that does not look at whether you have a great lawyer and money or whether you don't. It's inspiring to hear about progress in terms of representation for this incredibly important office. Still, that progress has been slow. I asked DA Sherry Boston why she thinks that is. Well, I mean, it's, it, it's really not surprising when you look at where we are and where we've been in our country. The legal field is one that has been predominantly dominated by men and by white men. So you, you, you start adding on the layers of being a prosecutor and then the fact that this role is elected by your community, um, it just continues to make this, this group smaller and smaller and smaller. And so uh, people like Kamala have paved the way for people like me and, and Kim Fox and Marilyn Mosby and Aramis Ayala to do the things that we've done because we're, we've been standing on her shoulders. And so this has been a slow journey. But I also know that in the four years that I've been district attorney, when I was first elected, I was the only African-American female district attorney in the state of Georgia. Four years later, I'm joined by five other amazing women. And it's, it's unheard of. But I think because we see people doing these amazing things, we know we can. Um, and so Kamala has been a trailblazer and she has blazed the trails in so many areas where we haven't seen Black women. But seeing her encourages us and tells us that we can do it. And for me, when I was solicitor, seeing someone like Kamala Harris, having been district attorney of San Francisco and then going on to California attorney general and then ultimately ascending to where she is now, that's been an inspiration to me. And I hope that each of us can continue to be an inspiration to a little black girl at home watching television that says that can be me. Even if Kamala Harris's political path had stopped at DA, she would have an inspiring story. She forged a path for other women, and particularly women of color, in a field dominated by white men. But as we know quite well, DA was not the end of the road for Kamala Harris. 
So how did being DA set Kamala up for the next step in her journey? Here's Ashanti Golar. For her career path, DA was the absolute perfect start because she has focused on this, you know, as attorney general, you know, in the Senate, she's focused so much on criminal justice roles. It was a really great trajectory. And even when we look at attorney generals, Emerge does a lot of work with the Democratic Attorneys General Association. There still aren't a lot of women in the attorney general position. So even when she ran for that seat, it was still very groundbreaking. And being a local DA, it definitely gave her more breadth, more knowledge into what was happening, not only in San Francisco, but across the state of California in the criminal justice system. So I think it played a big role in her trajectory and that it gave her a lot of knowledge that she was able to use and really have a head start, you know, ahead of other people who were considering the role. As district attorney, you're extremely familiar with the law. You know the power players, and you've gained experience campaigning and fundraising. You have a record to run on in future elections. Women running for office, any office, have to walk a fine line between strength and likability. Women who have served as DAs have a built-in resume booster when it comes to the strength component. Kelly Dittmar spoke to that point. Well, when we think about this position, It is aligned with more often stereotypical expectations of male or masculine expertise. So whenever we think of law enforcement, it is aligned with toughness, law and order, security, all of these things that historically, when you, you know, ask voters, do you expect, you know, this to align more with men and masculinity or women and femininity, that they're more likely to say this is an area of expertise for men, men are best suited for these roles. And so when women take on these roles, first of all, it might be harder for them to get into the role, to be accepted and recognized as having this expertise. And then once they do, what sort of pressures are put on them to meet the masculine expectations of the job um, and to not be perceived as being too soft. Um, And then add to that the intersections of race and gender, and you have additional challenges, particularly for a Black woman, to, again, not be seen as being too soft or too friendly um, to her own communities. And that is a really hard line to walk, and I think it's one that Kamala Harris walked. I think it's one that many Black women throughout the country who are DAs now are are walking. Um, but you see them do it pretty successfully and and be able to both advocate for their distinct perspective and communities while also being quite effective at their jobs. That those things are not mutually exclusive in any way. Here's Amanda Hunter again. Well, we know from our research, when you look at the barriers women face when they seek executive office, that strength versus toughness is so important because men are assumed to be tough and voters want men to be tough. When they when you think of things like being the commander in chief, they want someone that is a tough guy. Women really have to satisfy both gender stereotypes. They have to show that they are strong enough, but if they're too tough, then they're not going to be likable. So a role like district attorney almost organically 
gives a woman experience in a role of strength because they are prosecuting criminals, they are speaking out in difficult cases, and they're also often facing criticism from their adversaries and from the media. And we know from our research that one way that a woman can demonstrate strength is standing up for herself, answering tough questions from reporters. Voters like to see that. So that's a way to sort of organically build that kind of experience as a woman with an interest of public service. The risk of having a record is tough for any politician. And being a district attorney, you're right out there. You don't have a lot of control all the time. It's not like a legislative position where you're taking votes and you get to decide how you're going to vote. You might prosecute a case and it may not go your way. There could be surprises. So it's certainly not a role that you have all kinds of control. And then you have to run on that record or you have to own that record as you're making your next decisions. It's also a role because women have to show strength and they have to be strong enough where they can also face a backlash if they seem too tough because they can't be likable. So a woman in a district attorney position probably has to learn very early on how to walk that likability tightrope. Women who've been elected and served as DAs also gain something else vital, the belief and understanding that they can do it. Here's Sherry Boston. Leadership can extend across so many different boundaries. But it's it's about believing that you can can do these things, right? And and when I think about my story and where I've been and where I've come from in in the ten years that I've been in an elected office, I will say ten years ago I couldn't have contemplated that I'd be sitting here right now in this role. And it's because I needed I needed people to tell me it was something that I could do and. And we know for those of us, especially women in politics, this is not an unusual story that that women generally have to be asked where um, men traditionally will just do. But that's just the reality. And so why it's so important is, is that for me, by becoming solicitor, I then knew and had the confidence that I could be district attorney. And so one day when I make the decision to move and and do something else, there will be no doubt in my mind that I can I can do that next role. When I go back and think about Kamala's career and what it means to someone like me, is that it it shows a path of possibilities because Kamala has started her career as the district attorney in San Francisco. Prior to that, she was working, right, uh, as a prosecutor. But now the world can see, as she is about to become the vice president of the United States of America, that someone that was a DA can certainly be attorney general, and someone that was attorney general can certainly be a member of the U.S. Senate. And we all know, as a member of the U.S. Senate, you have the ability to be vice president and then some. And so it's so important to continue to to see um, that your road is open, your path is clear. Every day I think I don't want anyone to define or box me in to who I can be and what my limitations are. My limitations are as small as I allow them to be 
and I don't intend to let my limitations be small ever. Um, and that's the piece that I think I've learned over the last 10 years. And that's what I impart, I think, to the people that I am now lending a hand to as they make these vital decisions that, that, you know, the road is endless and the possibilities are limitless. For Rachel Rollins, seeing Kamala nominated as vice president proved that point. Honestly, Jenny, when I saw her running for president, her holding her own in, in every single forum she was in, and then when I heard um, President-elect Biden select her as the vice president, I got goosebumps because I thought, oh my God, like the way that I, when little girls walk up to me and say like, you look like my mom or my sister. And I like just start weeping, right? Like, oh my God. And they think like I could be you. I was like, I had her job, right? Not the same one, right? I'm not Chase Boudin or George Gascon who each have had her job. But I just thought this, like, you know, President Obama was a moment for me. This was bigger. It was bigger. Between district attorney and vice president, Kamala Harris held two other elected positions that helped to shape the politician she is today. Her influence on others thinking about running for office grew in tandem with increasingly national responsibilities. Next time on Women Belong in the White House, we're talking about attorneys general. Women Belong in the White House is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Liz Smith and Grace Lynch. Executive produced by me, Jenny Kaplan. Talk to you next time.